Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Many people see 2016's Brexit vote as a culmination of growing discomfort over the control this country has over its own borders, typified by the European Union's freedom of movement policy, which allows EU citizens to live and work all over Europe. For those of us who wish Britain to stay in the single market post-Brexit, this throws up a dilemma. Single market membership cannot be maintained without free movement. So can anything be done within those rules to give people a sense that we control who comes into the country? And how much should we concede to the argument that freedom of movement is bad for the country? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'll be discussing that with Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel, and former Shadow Europe Minister and Wolverhampton South East MP Pat McFadden. The March issue of Progress magazine, which lands with members and subscribers this week, looks at the feasibility of reform to free movement in detail. But before we look at some of the ideas that come from that, I'd like to talk about the way in which we talk about immigration. If we look at the famous controls and immigration mug from the 2015 election, it seems to reflect an inability on the left to properly articulate what our ideas on immigration are. Do we lack the confidence to talk about what we think? Or does the lack of clarity in message reflect the lack of clarity in thought? Alison, I wondered if we could start with you on this one. Do you think that's a kind of like fair dichotomy? Is, is one of those things more true than the other? I think it is a fair summation of the situation we find ourselves in. I think that people are worried about how you deal with what you suspect might be a bit of racism. And I think people get really nervous about that because they don't want to be critical of the British public. You don't want to normally have a go at people that you might later ask to vote for you. So I think people are worried about talking about that. My own view is it's perfectly possible to be clear about the level of racism in our country and what that problem is. And also to work out how we collectively would approach the problem of security at our border. I don't think there is a problem at all, but I understand why people get nervous about it. I personally think practice helps. I think the more that you've had to do this in real time in an election and in an election where you weren't certain that you were going to win, I think the better at it you become. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things that you get comfortable at doing. 
From my experience, you seem one of the more confident MPs of talking to people when the issue comes up out of nowhere on the doorstep. Is that just because you've spoken about it at length so many times that the kind of like practice it, and it comes from, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you stand in a marginal seat, then you'll get used to talking about immigration and that's no bad thing. Pat, do you think it's more important to show that we are willing to control our borders or to make the pro-immigration case? And how do you find the kind of balance within those two things? I think you've got to be honest. The discussion sometimes uh, for Labour politicians or people on the left can veer between two things. One is sort of not wanting to talk about it at all because it's a very difficult thing. And then sort of standing on our heads and desperately saying to the voter, oh, we think it's a big problem too. And this ends up in a national discussion about immigration as though it were some kind of disease. And we discuss it in entirely negative terms as though it was something to be limited, uh, stopped. Uh, this was a bad thing for the country and so on. And, and I think Both of those things are are wrong. So a discussion about it should be honest and should begin with the inescapable fact that people move around the world more than they used to. Sometimes that's for benign reasons. They just want to find a job. It's easy to get on a cheap flight. The Berlin Wall fell however many years ago. This has made moving around the world easier. And sometimes it's for darker reasons like refugees and so on. And they're often not the same discussion in a way, but they're all lumped in together. So people move around the world more than they used to. Every modern developed economy will be more diverse than it once was. That means that for those who simply don't want immigration at all or who are really uncomfortable with you know, the cultural aspect of different languages and different ways that people dress and look and so on, there's a limit to how much anybody on the centre-left can, can meet that concern because in the future, no matter what system we have, there are going to be more languages spoken. There are going to be more languages spoken at schools. There are going to be people who look a bit different and so on. These changes are here and they are permanent. What we need to have a discussion about is what are the rules under which this can take place? Because candidly, there is no rewind button to a country in a world that isn't coming back. It is saying that we want to increase control over our borders, but actually, at the same time, the current level of immigration is something that we're comfortable with a really feasible message to get out there because actually that feels like at the core of the argument in the latest magazine. I think that's a crucial argument to get out there because we can't knowingly promise something we can't deliver. There isn't a world, as Pat just said, where migration isn't going to exist. And one of the flaws and why the Brexit that was offered to the British public isn't actually available to the British public is because not only did they promise things that they couldn't deliver on funding of the NHS or whatever, all this kind of the milk and honey that would come from it, but actually the Brexit of take back control that people voted for isn't actually got any advocates here in Parliament. They're all go globalists. They all want to sign trade deals with countries who only want in response visas so for, for our access to their market. So it's not available. I think when you think about immigration, you have to be, and when the public raise it, they mean immigration. Too many people in the Labour Party try and change the question, but they talk about it in one of three ways, it seems to me. Competence. Do we have control of our border? Do we manage the system sufficiently? And there is a question mark with the public over that. And I think you have to have a kind of rational and ongoing debate that you know that's a problem and you are managing it actively. Secondly, there is a kind of opportunity costs. Are my wages going to be depressed? Are my public services going to be under pressure because of it? Austerity is making that more harsh. And therefore, I think 
is, is raising the salience of that for people. And that is the purpose of the Labour Party. Every manifesto that we've ever stood on is about relieving those kind of pressures, whether it's the 2017 one, the 2015 one, or any before. And one of the interesting things about Rachel Reeves' book that she did on Alice Bacon was she talked in exactly those terms about immigration in the 50s. So that's the purpose of the Labour Party. The third is a cultural point. And some people don't like the diverse languages that are spoke, different people have a fear of Islam, or whatever it might be. But we fundamentally disagree with that viewpoint. We hear it and we can have a discussion with people. We can then therefore police the border of where it's racist and where it's not racist. But ultimately, we don't agree. We think immigration has been good for Britain. You look at a city like Leicester, which outperforms some similar ranking cities of its size because it is able to use its diversity in the diaspora to be good for its economy and its culture. So I think you've got to, if you get the first two right on the competence and opportunity cost, you can then essentially push back on the culture point. And that, I think, is the right position for Labour to be in. On the culture point, I think uh, there's a really good article coming out this week by our colleague Hannah Shaw that really picks up on some of those uh, topics quite well. But I want to ask about the, you said that a lot of people, when they hear immigration, want to change the topic. They think it's about housing or something. But at the last election, it felt like immigration maybe fell away as a bit it, of an issue. It really, it really did, and there will, it will always be an issue. But I think it's what we think of as, you know, salience. What are the issues that are springing to mind of the voters? And immigration clearly fell. Now, is that because people feel like Brexit's just an answer to that, or is that because in a world where public services are crumbling before our very eyes? those issues rise up. Therefore, by definition, immigration falls as an issue. I think it's an interesting question. In the end, though, I think probably all, all of us would agree that if you're a politician in Britain who thinks that they can get away with never talking about immigration in their political career, you know, you're probably not serious. It's always going to be there. It always has been there, as, as Richard's been saying. The question is, how do we defend multiculturalism, a society that values people you know, if, if you're here and you want to be British and you want to pay in through your taxes and take your responsibilities to our country seriously, then I frankly don't care where you've come from. And I think that's a view that most people in the Labour Party would share. How do we articulate that in a way that doesn't sound or intend in any way to rubbish or diminish those people for whom it is a salient issue. I think that's a challenge, but I think it's an eminently doable challenge. In 2017, though, both parties essentially promised to reduce immigration. Labour had a pledge to end freedom of movement and the Tories had something similar. So it seemed like they'd both gone to a place that now feels very unsustainable. It felt like we as a party had done something opposite to what we normally do, which is that in tone, we had a much stronger kind of pro-immigrant way of yeah. talking, but at the same time had this this policy of, of removing free movement. And I wonder if that had a, a bit of an effect about the way that people thought about it during the campaign. One of the ironies of the discussion is that although free movement was a huge issue in the referendum and in the years running up to it. Most of the immigration in the last 10 to 15 years has come from outside the EU. This is the part with visas and applications for leave to remain and, and all the bureaucracy of the Home Office around it. But this is the part that's been responsible for most uh, immigration. I mean, I found to be, there is a, those voters who for, for whom this was their main concern in the referendum were often not really making a distinction between the immigration that comes through freedom of movement and that from outside. It was it was just a, mm. a a way of saying they wanted this to to slow down or or stop, which 
Which brings me back in a way to the kind of rules, the contract, as it were, with that a country sets out. And I think you've got to consider how this discussion must sound to people who, we should remind ourselves, have come here completely legally. Mm. They live here legally, they work here legally, and now they've got this whole national discussion about what problem they they represent. I think we should put themselves in their shoes for a few minutes. So what are when I talk about the rules, what kind of things might we mean? Well, for us as the Labour Party, there's obviously the labour market rules. Mm-hmm. There's what people are paid, there's hours of work, there's things, you know, there, there are labour market rules to stop people being exploited and to stop a race to the bottom in terms of paying conditions. We should look at that. There are perhaps things that we can strengthen there. When we were in government, we did this through the Agency Workers Directive. Maybe there's other things now. There's then some cultural norms that I think are really important to assert. For example, I think we should be really robust in saying wherever you've come from in the world, you know, if you come to the UK, remember this is a country where women are going to be allowed to wear what they want. We, you know, we're not going to have some kind of informal policing of this kind of thing. You know, there are certain cultural norms here, which is an open, developed democracy. We're going to be robust in standing up for. And I think some of this is about setting out what that contract is, what those what those kind of accepted norms are going to be, both in the labour market and culturally, so that we're clear you know, what the path is going forward for us as a country. I think we should stop this discussion there because we're going to chat a bit more about the ideas, including the possible revival of identity cards after these short messages. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate, or review it on iTunes, because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. Progress director Richard Angel believes Britain can stay in the single market and win public support for maintaining freedom of movement with 10 simple reforms. Rather than try and summarise it for you, I'm going to ask Richard to fly through his plan for us now. 
So if we're the people that are arguing for no change on the economy by staying in the single market and the customs union, I think we have to put a case that it won't just be the status quo going forward. So here are some of the things that we could do that would reform freedom of movement, but keep the principle and hopefully give the public the confidence so we don't have to affect the economy going forward. So firstly, count migrants in and out of the country. It's something we've done in the single market before. We had it under until Michael Howard abolished it when he was the Tory Home Secretary in 1995. We essentially have it for non-EU migrants and we're going to have it regardless whether we have Brexit or not, it seems, going forward. Secondly, a worker registration system. Most places in Europe have this. Germany certainly do. You have to go to your local authority and say that you're here to work. We could do something similar. Thirdly, Entitlement cards or identity cards, the technologies change massively. Places like Estonia have it with an aggressive Russia on their border, and they could we could have the same here too. Number four, a Belgium-style system of if you don't have a job, you don't get to stay. They, if you're in Belgium and you've not found a job within three months, you get a letter written to you asking you to go back. Five, support Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, in his attempt to beef up the posted workers directive. This is something that Jeremy Corbyn has supported throughout the referendum and afterwards, and is something that we should implement here. Traditionally, Britain has been the people pulling back on directives like the posted workers directive. Six, we can transform the rules on job vacancies, ban the agencies that recruit whole workforces for abroad. Many of this was in the 2015 manifesto and is part of Switzerland's New Deal with the EU. Seven, we could have a migration impact fund, something created by Gordon Brown, abolished by the Tories and advocated by Jeremy Corbyn at his last conference speech. Eight, reform the labour market, get rid of zero hour contracts. Again, many of the things that were in the 2015 and 2017 manifesto. Nine, we need to ensure we have properly funded public services. Austerity is making this worse. And a hypothecated NHS tax, I think, would hopefully give people the confidence that we can afford the NHS and have the migration that we have. Most migrants who work in the NHS are not using its services, but providing them. And 10, negotiate with the EU, starting with our sister parties, reform to free movement that the whole continent might be able to agree with. So this isn't a tension for Britain going forward, but a way we can work together. Pat, I thought we could start with you because you wrote a piece for Progress recently about a Marshall Plan for the Working Classes, which seems to correspond there to Richard's idea for number eight reform to the labour market. I wondered if if you could expand a bit more on that and and what kind of things we would need and what it might mean. Well, the Marshall Plan was about much more than uh, some of the concerns about immigration. Mm. I mean, that idea stems from thinking about Labour's great moments of victory in the past, and there have only really been three, in 1945 and in 64 and 97. And what did they have in common? Which to me was an honest discussion about what the real problems of the country are and what the answers to them might be. And one of my frustrations about the Brexit and post-Brexit discussion is the way that the ships seem to pass in the night, the the cultural divide between Remainers and Leavers. And while I was hugely opposed to Brexit and nothing has happened since the referendum to make me change my mind, I do acknowledge that economically the grievances and sense of disenfranchisement in lots of working class communities is genuine. And if we don't like the answer posited to that by the right, which tends to revolve around nationalism and an element of nostalgia, then we've got a duty to really answer those problems, be they inequality in childcare, lack of good work, lack of opportunities, a decayed physical environment in small cities like 
uh, Wolverhampton that I represent and so on. So the concept of a Marshall Plan for working class communities is to directly address these grievances with the overall aim of giving working class communities a greater stake in how the country is run and a greater stake in the economy, which I think is not felt right now. So that's what that's about. Now, the elements of that, turning to the, the list that Richard's read out, some of that would be around some of this uh, labour market stuff. People don't want a race to the bottom in wages and so on. So you've got to constantly look at uh, the rules. Now, it's not as though we never did this in the past. You know, we brought in the Agency Workers Directive, which was aimed exactly at stopping a race to the bottom in wages where people were empl employed as agency workers rather than uh, permanent workers. And to be honest, looking at that debate, that was going to be the great magic bullet, some mm. people said, for yeah. the migration discussion. We brought it in. It wasn't the magic bullet. And, you know, I don't, while I think some of these other reforms are, are right, because you, you should always keep this under review, I don't think we should overclaim for them on their own in terms of what they will do to this discussion. But it's really important that we as a Labour Party are saying there should be a floor of decency in terms of terms and conditions at work below which things should not be allowed to fall. Our ambitions, of course, should be much higher than that. It's just mm. a floor. We should be the party of good work, good education for all, a good start in life, and good opportunity for all. And when we look at our working class communities, can we honestly say that those things are there at the moment? I don't think we can. And that's why I think after the financial crisis, uh, as well as the referendum, we need a really big plan for these communities that brings all these things together. Alison, a lot of people on the left make arguments about our membership of the single market preventing us from doing things that might carry out reforms such as these. Do you see any truth in that or, or is there a way that some of these reforms would perhaps be have to be made on a, a Europe-wide basis that might slow us down? To be honest, I think the biggest lesson from the discussion that we've had about Brexit, both during the referendum and afterwards, is that a lot of the things that we might want to do to give people a stake and a say in British society, we could have done a long time ago. Mm, true. I think that David Cameron is a bit of a fool, really, because he created the circumstances, the perfect storm, if you like, for Brexit to happen, and then walked willfully through the door of having the referendum, having risked us losing it. You know, I never thought it was a great idea to have an EU referendum, but I don't think that diminishing people's public services. I just think about the towns that Pat was just talking about then, the towns across Britain that have lost libraries, that have lost public facilities, and now we're seeing you know, high street retailers having to shut branches. And those, those conditions were created by an inadequate response to the financial crisis by the Tories. And then they created this referendum when they'd built the circumstances for us to lose it. So I think so much we could have done ourselves before. And I think still now, I think the answer to a lot of the Brexit desires for those who voted leave they're in our own hands already, whether it's Richard's list that we just heard of, much of which, I mean, pretty much all of that, apart from the Macron stuff, is in our own hands already, right? We could do all of it, yeah. We don't need Brexit for that, and no one in Europe would dream of stop us trying to do it if that's what we wanted to do. Pat's more broader vision about the economic settlement for particularly people in working class communities or people who don't have so much of a chance, I think is obviously necessary anyway, but now it's really necessary. You know, I think about people in towns 
where they you know have lost all of the kind of civic infrastructure of libraries and town halls and that kind of thing because of council cuts and you know nationally the government has absolutely no plan for regeneration even when they talk about housing if you notice um Sajid Javid this week has been talking a lot about building new homes they are talking about being very demand driven which is okay like i'm very much in favor of people in areas of london and the southeast where there's loads of pressure i think about you know the price pressure on a young family in crawley say i'm very much in favor of us trying to take that on and do something about it but without an equal plan for regenerating areas where no one wants to live there then you're basically saying to whole swathes of the country you know it's the end for you you know there's places where like there's whole streets still of back-to-back terraces that need regeneration. And unless you've got some plan for those places and those towns, then you're going to keep this sense of resentment that got us to Brexit in the first place. I think that's exactly right. And one of the reasons why I tried to bring this together is that like one to nine are all within our gifts and we can do those and we have the power to do those. And just because either Brexit seems destined for some people or because some of these things are difficult to talk about doesn't mean we shouldn't try because I think the opportunity of staying in the single market and the customs union is such a dividend for the country um, is that we've got to therefore sometimes go to the more difficult places to do it and show that actually on the key things we do have control over the kind of rules that we've had. There's sometimes a good reasons why we haven't had them previously, but that we're going to go down some of these routes anyway. And if we go down the route and keep our membership of the single market in the customs, that seems to me to be the right thing to do and the way of having a kind of honest discussion with the public and giving ourselves choices going forward. Pat mentioned a minute ago about that, you know, there not being a real kind of silver bullet uh, to any of this kind of stuff. Pat so just had to rush off, unfortunately, so we can't get him back in on that point. But Richard, how much do you think kind of what is the central big reform here? Because I get the feeling that you might feel it's identity cards. I actually think it's doing a series of things. You always have to put to the British public, here are some agreed cross-party beverage report style levels of reform to both the way we manage our borders, the way we grow our economy and share the proceeds of it, the way that we employ people and promote their ability to move through the labour market uh, and the way that we fund, I think particularly the public's love of the NHS, but public services more widely, you almost need a comprehensive um, offer on all of those things. I think the thing about ID cards is they go into the debate in an important way because it's something that we haven't wanted to talk about or seen as being un-British in the past. Whereas actually, I think the modern incarnation of them would be ones that we could be intensely relaxed about in terms of how they would impact on our daily lives. And even for some of those who traditionally, say from ethnic minorities, who've, who've been fearful of, if they need to carry an ID card, you might get asked disproportionately by the police. I think that's uh, less of a concern than it uh, once was, but should be paramount in all of our But also, couldn't we? I mean, I think the Freedom of Information Act is really informative here. Like, actually, that implied a whole new set of duties for public bodies. Exactly. To give people, it's not just the Freedom of Information Act so you can know what's going on within the state, but it's also your right to personal information through, you know, data protection and subject access requests. I was going to say, because the new data rules invert that entirely, yeah. of which you should own your data. And one of the things that's interesting about the Estonia model of ID cards is that they've got a very aggressive Russia on their border who are constantly trying to hack their system. So they've had to come up with 
and they've almost got an e-democracy. Their whole system is based on this there that is, is, is kind of Russia-proof. And therefore, they've gone for the kind of blockchain model that sits behind things like Bitcoin that means you own your data and it's in a kind of, I don't really understand it myself, but in a kind of <laughs> a, a complicated web. Oh, friends, but, I foresee a pr- progressive Britain podcast on the blockchain I, in I, our future. I'm sure this is, is this coming in future. It this will not be you know, doing this is, it. You know, the, this is my new favourite subject. It does not surprise me. Treasury Select or, Committee are just about to commence an inquiry into cryptocurrency which also uses the blockchain which uses blockchain but the government are trialing with benefit uh, the database they've got on benefits is going to have to be looked at in terms of what sits behind the passport system already so the technology is going to move in this direction and in a way that you the citizen hold the data on yourself but your id card or, or or passport is your kind of passport into those services so very much that entitlement card system so it's not the same technology it was it's in a different kind of environment to what it was but i think it does give us an opportunity to offer change and opportunity for people sorry i just know that uh, at a recent progress event afterwards uh, we all went to the pub and i know john mann was telling everyone who would listen his excitement about the opportunities presented by blockchain i presume that is because he's been <laughs> in the same treasury select committee <laughs> as you alison um, there is there is a, a really excellent it's probably piece. been ob- obsessively reading all of the uh, commentary <laughs> around it this was like nobody heard of it or gave two hoots until the the recent market spike and now crash and it's all <laughs> of a sudden we all think oh i better know, know about this there is a, a tremendous piece in the in the, in the new magazine uh, by macy borrows from the reform think tank about blockchain and the estonian model that i really do recommend because it's not something that i know loads about but it is so interesting richard i just want to ask on this 10-point plan. A couple of those things, ID cards, counting migrants in and out of the country, funding public services. A lot of these look like they will cost a lot of money. Do you think that is just the cost of, of getting people's confidence back in, in a system? I think it is. They, will, they all will cost a lot of money. But it seems to me that we've tried to do this kind of being in the European Union essentially on the cheap. And we're not going to be able to do that anymore. The Marshall Plan that the working classes need and that our second tier cities deserve is going to cost a lot of money. We're going to have to change the frame of how our public services work, how our funding works, because there's a kind of not just a hollowing out in the economy, but there seems to be a hollowing out in our public space. And we can't tolerate that because this is what makes us the kind of good and tolerant society. And when that is strong, we can look out on the world better. And that's what is going at the moment. People are fearful that their kind of opportunity and security are falling away beside them. And they're trying their best to grab that back. We have got to be the repository for the solutions of that and reconcile essentially the opportunity offer that we had in the 90s with a security offer for the current decade. Why did we stop counting people in and out in the 90s? Was it a part of a kind of like, uh, you know, a, a message to Europe that we were taking a bigger role in, in the well, It was cost, I believe. I think it was a right, okay. it's simply a cost element. I mean, people forget that, that uh, it, the Tories have form on on this so ken clark as much as much as i have recently walked through more division lobbies with him than i ever thought i might have <laughs> um uh, you know ken clark was a real austerity chancellor and yeah when, they, when you were growing up in 1990s merseyside did you really think that you'd be kind of every week walking through a lobby with ken clark <laughs> <laughs> no no he was definitely on my list also, he might have started austerity clauses that mean led us to leaving the eu some years later oh, because that God. sense of control went then yeah no no but that basically is it really the tories in the 90s did a lot to diminish the state because actually and what kicked off all of that well the 
ERM and, you know, mis mishandling of the European issue led them to this path of uh, the 1990s public services austerity, which then builds in this actually the same on um, on the place of towns. If you look at the problems that certain places in the north have, it's because of deindustrialization that was started by Thatcher. And Brexit is just like the, you know, if I'm allowed to use this terminology, the shit cherry on the shit icing on the shit cake <laughs> that the Tories baked us all, you know, in the 80s. Thank you for that mental image. Finally on this, I want to ask about the point five is support Emmanuel Macron's attempts to beef up the posted workers directive. And point 10 is negotiate with the EU um, on reforms to free movement. Now, Given Brexit and given the Italian elections this weekend when a Eurosceptic populist party came top of the polls, the EU looks like it's going to be in a state of paralysis for a while where we don't really know what's going on. Is, are either of those really kind of possible things to do or is that a bit pie in the sky? Well, firstly, there is a post workers kind of directive and Britain is currently resisting it and not implementing it at the moment. So we could just do that as a minimum. And that means that the people who, when a, uh, say an Italian company gets a contract here and they can move over workers to come and deliver that contract, that has to be time limited in some way. You can't just do that as a replacement for local workforces. You have to treat them in certain ways. We can We could implement the directive as is at the moment. Macron is trying to make that stronger, take it from two years to one year, for example, and do a whole series of things. We could be supporting that. We're not actually left yet, um, and others can be. But the bit about the reform when we go to the EU is that I think one of the things is other countries aren't talking about immigration either, but their voters are. You look across the EU and there is clearly a rise of parties that want are working off the back of there is a public clamour for a sense of control to be there but because the mainstream parties essentially aren't talking about it they're being picked up by UKIP style forces and we cannot let that happen we've got to push them off the fringes like I said own the competence own the opportunity cost and push them off the culture point quite right so I, I'm pretty sure that I remember Matteo Renzi writing in The Guardian and a whole range of newspapers across different European countries saying, friends, help us deal with the insecurity that we've got because of the refugee crisis of which, you know, the south of Europe is the front line. I remember shouting and screaming my head off at David Cameron about us negating our responsibilities uh, to help other, P other European countries deal with the immigration issue because it essentially looked like, you know, the European centre, if you like, people who were at the centre of things, the elites in Europe, didn't really care as not only did, you know, people have to try and rescue people desperately out of the Mediterranean, but also coastal communities in the south of Italy and Greece are having to deal with this issue that is a security nightmare. And people in those areas have incredible amounts of sympathy for people who've had to, you know, escape death and destitution in whatever way. But they should never have been allowed to be just left to deal with it on their own. And so you, again, in the context in the you know context of Italy, I'm not an expert in Italian politics, but I feel as though our lack of leadership on the immigration issue, even from Britain, has somehow fed into the circumstances where the right have now taken over in Italy because we looked as that we lost the argument on Richard's uh, competence point. I think that's probably all we have time for with that discussion, but uh, do stick with us because next we will have the pub quiz question. 
Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which then gets answered on Friday's review show. It is International Women's Day this week, so my question is, which country's parliament has the highest ratio of women politicians in it? Spoiler alert, not Britain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're basically giving these mugs away. Yeah. <laughs> Send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or at Connor Pope on Twitter and listen to Friday's show to find out if you've won a mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Pat McFadden joining us today. Remember to send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we will respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast